Man. Never knew you had talent, Eddie. That's fantastic. I thought Robin got it all. Thank you for that. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open them up to Nehemiah chapter 5, where we will be uh, this morning. And for those of you that maybe have moved into this region from another region, you are aware that this is the uh, allergy capital of the world, I think. And uh, it's got a hold on me, is what it's done. So I will, uh, I'll try not to spit on you too much today. And uh, we'll walk ourselves through Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. Some of you here with us have some type of autoimmune disease. My wife has one. She's been a type 1 diabetic since she was 6 years of age. Some of you have uh, some sort of autoimmune disease. There, there are about 50 million Americans that have one. And the nasty thing about autoimmune diseases is the fact that what happens is, essentially, your immune cells in your body that are supposed to fight off sickness and disease don't do that. Instead, they attack your own body. That's what happened to my wife. That's how she got diabetes, an autoimmune disease, an attack upon her pancreas so that she's no longer able to produce insulin. Rheumatoid arthritis is a type of an autoimmune disease. Lupus is a type of autoimmune disease. And essentially what it is, is your body attacking itself. Isn't that horrible? Our bodies, our immune systems are supposed to protect us from these kinds of things. Well, what do we do when they turn coat and they rebel against us and they come against our own body? Well, we get diseases. We get sickness and an attack from within. You know, in the church, it's possible to have an autoimmune disease. Paul talks about it. In, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 29, Paul has been in the city of Ephesus. He's planted a church there. He's worked with the leaders. And now he is leaving Ephesus and he calls the church leaders together. And listen to what he says to them. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's an attack from without. We, we can see that. We can deal with that. But look at what he continues to say. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul says, you know the church can have an autoimmune disease? From within itself, there can come false teachings in the form of, of, of people who propagate those false teachings. And Paul says, you can have an attack without, and you can also have attack from within inside the church. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us that these are these kind of two-pronged approaches. In fact, Nehemiah deals with the exact same thing. If you were with us last week, we were in Nehemiah chapter 4, and what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 4 is there was a attack from without. You have these, these guys 
Tobias and Sanballat and, and, and all of these guys that come together and they attack the work that God is doing through the people of God. There is an attack from without. Guess what we discover in Nehemiah chapter 5? There's an attack from within. Which is worse? I don't know. Neither one of them are very good. But I don't know if we can say one is worse than the other, but one is certainly less expected than the other, isn't it? Look at what we find in Nehemiah chapter 5. We, we begin to see what is happening. Just as a reminder, Nehemiah has been in Babylon. He comes down to Jerusalem. The walls around the city of Jerusalem, well, the, the wall is just, it's, it's decimated. It's destroyed. And it was a symbol of the glory of God. It was a protective measure for the people of God within the city. And so Nehemiah says, we've got to rebuild the wall. He sets the group together. They begin to rebuild the wall. Opposition comes from without. And then now in Nehemiah chapter 5, there's an attack from within. From, from God's own people against the work of God. And there comes kind of a strike of sorts, if you will. There's a strike that takes place. And the work of rebuilding the wall comes to a stop. In Nehemiah chapter 5, look at this, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people. That word great is a word that Nehemiah uses frequently. That, that, that superlative word, there was a great outcry of the people. We also find it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we read there, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great. And in fact, over in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told that this great work was a great work for a great God. And so here you have this great work for a great God that comes to a stop because there is a great outcry of the people. Something's wrong. There's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And here in the midst of this great work, we hear the people in their cry. Now, in the first five verses, Nehemiah gives for us the reason for this outcry. And so let's just look at it together this morning. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. See, it's one thing to have an attack from outside. It's altogether different when you have an attack inside. For there were those who said, verse 2, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So, so get this in your mind. See, see what is happening here. In chapter 4... There is opposition from without. In chapter 5, there is opposition from within. Now, I want to make this spiritual application to your life of this 
so that you understand this, okay? When it comes to living your spiritual life, you need to understand that you are constantly, individually, you're going to have attack from without. The world is going to come against you, right? I mean, this isn't a surprise to you, is it? If this is a surprise, you are going way too far with the world. This should not be a surprise to you. That the world comes to attack you, to seek to get you involved in sinful behavior, sinful attitude, sinful lifestyle, whatever it is. And the world comes along to try to drag you into its mold. We see that. But you've got another problem to deal with. The other problem is not just the world out there. The other problem that you have to deal with, the other problem that I have to deal with, is the heart in here. You see, we've got an external problem, but don't kid yourselves for a moment to think that if suddenly that external problem was gone, you wouldn't have any more problems, because that's not true. I mean, think about it even in the case of, uh, of our ancestors, Adam and Eve in the garden, a perfect environment, everything that they wanted at their disposal, and yet what did they do? They chose sin over God. You see, we have a heart problem. We have an internal problem that we have to deal with. That's what we find in Nehemiah. There's opposition outside, but there is opposition also internally. And there is this tug of war. There is this spiritual battle that goes on back and forth in your heart and in your existence. Do I go with God or do I go the way of my heart in rebellion against God? And this tug of war goes on all the time. And it's exhausting in the battle, isn't it? Please tell me it's exhausting in the battle. Because you see, if you're not exhausted in this battle, you're not fighting. And that's a problem. That means you've given in. And so Nehemiah has something to say to you today. If you're thinking of giving in, or if you've already given in to this. So we've got the world outside of us. We've got our heart within us. And all of this is creating tension with us in living the way that God wants us to live. Are we going to do that or are we not going to do that? And Nehemiah here in chapter 5, he introduces us to four groups of people. And I'm just going to point them out to you very quickly. First of all, there were people who owned land, but who needed food. In verse 2, we see them. People who owned land, but they needed food. And then in verse 3, we have this second group of people. We have landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. So you have people with land, but the crops aren't growing. Apparently there's some sort of famine, some sort of drought that is going on, and so food is scarce. So you have landowners who need food, and then you have other people who have mortgaged their land in order to buy food. And then the third group you have are these people who had to borrow money to pay taxes because the taxes were exorbitant. The king required the taxes to be paid. And what eventually happened is these people were putting their property up for collateral. When the taxes came due, they were paying the taxes. They had no money to live on, no money to pay the taxes the next time. And so they lost their property. And then you have this fourth group of people who come along, and these were some wealthy Jews who were living there in this time at this, this juncture right here, and they had been exploiting their own brothers, their own sisters, the Jewish people, by loaning them money and then taking their lands and their children for collateral. 
So they were saying, yeah, I will, I'll loan you this money. What are you going to give me for collateral? Well, I've, I've got a good piece of property here. Good. I'll put, take that as collateral. Then, hey, you're behind on your loan. You need to pay me. Well, I can't. Good. I'll take your land then. Then they come back and they say, listen, we, we are starving. We need help. We need money. Well, I've got money I can loan you. Well, I don't have any collateral. You don't. Well, you've got two healthy children. I sure could use some workers. Why don't you give me your kids and I'll loan you the money? That's the kind of thing that was going on. This is what was happening. And this was the reason for the outcry that the people brought to Nehemiah. And it all revolved around money. Imagine that. Money's a problem. Yeah, just like it is today. Taxes are too high. Don't have enough money to make ends meet. Living paycheck to paycheck. Friends, listen, this is not a sermon about money per se, but I want to mention this to you because it's important within the text. You need to understand that God is concerned with your finances. Let me tell you why He's concerned with your finances. He's concerned with how you make your finances, and He's concerned with what you do with your finances. You know why? Because that's how you can tell where a person's heart is. Just think about it, okay? I don't have to give you an illustration of this. You think about it in your own life. You know where your heart is by how you spend your money, don't you? How many of us are spending $150 every month so we can have television shows to watch? Now, let's be real a minute, okay? Is that a need for any of us? No, it's not. Now, I'm, I'm not pointing a finger at you, okay? Because, I, 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 see, I've got three coming right back at me when I do this, okay? So when that happens, I, I do the same thing. <laughs> Just this week, had a conversation with somebody. Hey, what do you think about this gun? I sure would like to have one to add to my collection. And I thought, you know what? I really don't need that gun, do I? No, I don't. I've got two hands. That's the most I can hold at any time. Why do I need 15? Well, because somewhere along the line, I was told you don't sell guns, you buy guns. That's what you do, and you get as many as you can. And so I'm thinking, do I really need this? No. But where's my heart? Where's my heart? See, here's something fun you can do when you get home. Sit down with your checkbook and your family and find out where you spend your money. It'll show you where your heart is. Very quickly, very quickly. God is concerned about this because when we use money improperly, it is an indication of a defective heart. And beyond that, it is an indication of continuing defectiveness within our hearts. So there was a problem revolving around money that was going on here. There was a famine that was taking place. The taxes were too high. People were indebted to the wealthy around them. And so what happens in the midst of this difficulty, the work of God stops. Have you ever known churches where the work of God stopped because there was a money problem? Sure. Sure. It's in the church where our monthly mortgage payment was $18,000 every month. 
I sat down and I got in touch with the International Mission Board. I brought back to the people and said, do you realize that with two months mortgage payment, we could fully support a missionary for a year in some places? But we needed a new building. Did we really? Well, I don't know. The work is stopped. The people are vulnerable. The Lord is shamed. That's the reason that the cry went out. So look at the reaction to the cry from Nehemiah. In chapter 5, verse 6, we see it. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. Could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What was Nehemiah's reaction to this? He said, I was very angry. If he'd been in East Tennessee, he said, I was ticked off when I heard what was happening. Now see, this is not a problem that arose since Nehemiah got there. Nehemiah's just been there for a little while. I mean, we're talking about just a month into this building project. This didn't start in this month. This has been going on for a while. Somehow nobody knew about it. And then they come along and the workers say, hey, we're working to build this wall and we're hungry. We need some food. What's the problem? Well, there is no food. What food there is, we've had to mortgage our our homes and our lands to buy it, and now we've got nothing left, and the people are taking our children off into slavery, and the taxes are too high, and what are we going to do, Nehemiah? Nehemiah comes along and he says, I was ticked when I heard what was happening. I was angry when I heard what took place. And I know we think, man, isn't that awful? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't a leader be given to compassion when people complain? Well, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes he needs to get ticked off. Not always does he need to respond with compassion and kindness. Sometimes he needs to get ticked off and say, this has to stop. That's what Nehemiah did. He jumped into the fray and he said, this has to stop. It's been real funny as I've, I've been preparing for this to read various commentaries and people talking about this passage and and sermons that have been preached and hear them try to deal with Nehemiah's anger because, you know, we're we're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to express anger. We're, We're supposed to deal with this. But you see, the problem is we tell people that and then nobody knows what to do with their anger appropriately. And it's still there. The anger is still there. We just don't know how to deal with it appropriately. And so we end up getting angry at the wrong things. Classic illustration, you know, guys at work all day, his boss berates him, co-workers don't get along with him. He comes home at the end of the day and he kicks his dog. Well, what'd the dog do? Nothing. But I was angry here and I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I took it out in this place. Now, aren't we all prone to do that? Say yes, (laughs) we are. You know who we do it with? 
maybe not our dog, but usually our families, our spouses, our children. We come home and emotionally or verbally we kick them a little bit because we're angry and we don't know how to deal with the anger. See, friends, listen, there is a great difference, but there is a difference. There is a great difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. You know what we usually get angry about? Personal offenses to us. Well, that, that hurt my feelings. Well, I didn't like that. And we get angry about personal offenses to us. That's, a, that's an unrighteous kind of anger. A righteous kind of anger is when God's Word is spoken against or, or put down when the righteousness of God is brought down and debased in some way, there is a righteous anger that should come to us when those moments happen. Proper place for this kind of anger. And Nehemiah found it. This, this word for anger, it means, it means to be hot. It means to be furious, to burn, to be kindled. To be incensed. It's, it's a heavy-duty word that Nehemiah uses here. There's no denying the fact that Nehemiah was angry. And he should have been. There was stuff happening here that was contrary to the Word of God. There should be anger over that. Hey, listen, friends. In your life, when there is sin that is there, there should be anger over that. To say, I don't want this here. I want this gone out of my life. It's that righteous anger that spurs us on to action against those things. See, Moses expressed this kind of anger. Moses, back, back at the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 1, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And as soon as he, that's Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands, broke them at the foot of the mountain, took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Whoa. That's anger. Why was he so upset? Because the people had violated the word and the command of God. As God's people, we can't do that. Paul expressed anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say don't be angry. He says don't sin in your anger. Don't, don't compound the anger. Bring sin on top of it. In fact, more than one occasion we read that Jesus got angry. Mark chapter 3, verse 1, He entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, and all of these people opposing Jesus, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. 
grieved at their hardness of heart. He healed the man. You know, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes into the temple. The people are making a mockery, taking advantage of God's people and the sacrifices. And Jesus got so angry that he's throwing over the tables. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, most of us do not operate in the realm of righteous anger like that. It is very rare that we get angry when there is an affront to God and His Word and His commands in our lives. More often than not, we just let that go. But somebody talks about me behind my back, oh, I'm mad now. Uh, you, you, you can do anything you want with God's Word, but just don't bring me into it. So within the church, we excuse all sorts of incredible behavior that we shouldn't excuse. We should get angry about it. It doesn't mean that we go around beating people up and knocking them out, but it means we are angry enough to confront that and say, this is against God's Word. It needs to stop. That's why Nehemiah was so upset. People had forsaken the work of God. They had forgotten the Word of God. In Exodus 22, God gave a provision within that. Well, let's just read it. He says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Wow, wouldn't that be awesome? So you're the Jewish nation. You've got all the pagan nations around you. And God says, listen, if you have money and your brother is in need, you can loan him the money, but don't charge interest. That's a pretty good deal. Know why God did that? Because he wanted all of these nations around Israel to see that his people were different. They didn't operate by the world's standards. They were di- in fact, every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. Slaves were set free. Debts were forgiven. It was gone. Now, listen, that meant it probably wasn't very easy to get a loan. But that's okay. Because, you see, God wants to remind His people, you depend upon Me, and you keep your heart with Me. So here they were in direct violation of God's Word. Don't loan money with interest, and don't enslave your own people. God told them that. No Jew was ever to enslave another Jew. Nehemiah comes along and he says, you're breaking the word of God. That's why he was angry. That's why he was upset. Friends, I I think that honestly, we should probably be more angry than we are. When I look at my own life, I should be angry at what I let slip in. But God says, that doesn't need to be there. What about in your life? Are there things that that you're letting slip in that God says, that doesn't need to be there? Is there not an anger that rises within you to say, this has to stop? I don't want this anymore. Well, in the final verses, we'll see real quickly the remedy to the cry. We've already read verse 12. Nehemiah calls an assembly together. He gets all the people together, the ones that were doing wrong, the ones that were being taken advantage of. He calls it out. In the assembly. Stop it. And he gives them what should happen within this. Here's the remedy that he gives. The remedy that you need in your life when your own heart rises up in rebellion against the Word of God with you. 
this internal threat that comes. First of all, verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. First thing you need to do, make a decision to stop. What is it? What's, what's that sin in your life? What is that internal draw that is contrary to the Word of God that's there that you're letting slip in? I don't know what it is for you. It could be any number of things. Stop it. Nehemiah says, let's abandon this exacting of interest. Take the steps necessary to stop it now. Stop it. Then come down to verse 11. See what Nehemiah did. He determines a plan for them. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Notice when he says to do this. This very day. Right now. Determine the plan. Right now, decide what you're going to do and set it into motion. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't start the diet on Monday. Do it right now, this very day. Don't wait until next week. Don't wait until after the holidays. Start now. Begin now with it. Determine what you're going to do in the long run to help you win this battle. And I'm going to tell you the first step in that plan is to trust the Lord in every aspect of it. Because see, here's the problem that we do. We get our plan, we decide to stop, we do all of these steps, but we put the Lord over here. You know how long that's going to last in your life? About like that. About the same as it lasts in my life. If you don't trust in the power of the Lord every moment of every day, you're going to go back and lose the battle. Because the Lord's the only one who's got strength to get you through the battle. That's it. He's the only one who has the strength to do that. That's why Paul tells us that when this temptation comes, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And when the temptation comes, God always gives a way of escape. Always. Whatever the temptation is that you face, God always gives a way of escape. You've got to trust Him in it. But look at verse 13. Look at what they did. They made the decision to stop, they determined a plan, and then number three, declare those plans. In verse 13 we see it. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said... So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Nehemiah made them take an oath. He made them swear this is what we're going to do. You know what he did by doing that? He made them accountable. He held them accountable. See, friends, if you're going to win in this battle, whatever the battle for you is, if you're going to win, you're not going to win it by yourself. 
You've got to have the Lord. And then the Lord in His grace and in His love has surrounded you with people that can help you in the battle. That can help you. That's what happened here. He said, listen, you've got to let people in on this. Because friends, listen, God is in the business of changing lives. Wherever you're stuck, whatever it is, God is in the business of changing lives. You've got to deal with your heart and let Him take that heart and soften it up and mold it into what He wants it to be within you before you're ever going to be able to win the battle. Where is your step in this? Where do you start in this? What's the internal threat that is in your life? Maybe, maybe it's gossip. Let's just, let's just take that. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe what you need to do is right now, this moment, come along in anger and say, this is contrary to the Word of God. I must stop it. And then you get on the phone and you call somebody and say, you know what, I've been convicted. I've been convicted about gossip and I'm going to stop it. And I want you to hold me accountable. When you hear me gossip, I want you to say, stop it. You don't need to be doing that. Remember, you asked me to hold you accountable. You invited me into this. Stop it. You see, it, it's, it's when we work together that we're able to do a lot of this. But I promise you, you're never going to do it alone. Never are you going to do it alone. There is an internal threat that all of us deal with. It's our heart. What are you going to do about your heart? Are you going to keep going in, in the same stuff you've gone in, stuck by the same attitude, stuck by the same behavior, stuck by the same actions, stuck by the same thoughts? Or are you going to say like Nehemiah, it's time to stop right now. Here's how I'm going to do it. These are the steps to put in place. Listen, friends, some of you need to take steps with your computers. Some of you need to take steps with your friends. Some of you need to take steps with where you go. Some of you need to take steps with who you hang out with. I don't know what it is. I'm just telling you things that the Lord has shown me before. What steps are you going to take? Who's going to help you in it? And are you going to trust the Lord or not to get it done? Would you pray with me this morning, please? Father, we thank you for your word and, and how directly it speaks through, through this document, thousands of years old, written in antiquity, and yet still we can find our own hearts in the pages of it. Father, I pray for your people here today that we would do business with this internal threat of our own heart. And that we would be angry over the sin and unrighteousness that we let slip in. And that instead we would hunger, we would thirst, we would desire 
righteousness from you. And that our lives would indicate the righteousness we've received in Christ. Father, I pray today for those who have never trusted in Jesus. They remain stuck because they don't have the hope of Christ to get out. And I pray today, Father, please would you open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ who died taking their sin that they might be forgiven and that they might be cleansed and they might have power to live in victory every day. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.